0: From Lansing Community College, this is LCC Connect, and this is Land Stories, with me, David Seewick. Each episode explores a different topic, such as the people, business, neighborhoods, communities, buildings, and other phenomena that make up the history of our college and our region. We tell stories, and in doing so, we connect the past to the present. On this episode of Land Stories, we are going to pick up where we left off a little while ago. Uh, for those of you who are our loyal listeners, you will remember that we did a lovely show on signs and signage here in Lansing, and kind of the general idea of figuring out why you're getting around and what needs to be done, and the role that signs play in that. And to help us along those lines, we had a wonderful guest in here. Daniel Sewick joined us in studio, and he joins us again today to uh, discuss more about Lansing area science. So Daniel, welcome to our program.
1: Thank you. Happy to be
0: back. Very happy to have you uh, with us. And, And just to give kind of a quick refresher of our previous program, which I would encourage all of you to go back and listen to if you have not had a chance to do so yet. On the last program, we started talking about sort of some general ideas of communication and public communication and the role science play in that. As Daniel correctly identified, signs are a very old and important part of human civilization, actually. And then we got into looking at some really cool old signs that are in Lansing, actually, uh, including some that are from businesses and buildings that have either been repurposed or don't exist anymore, uh, really, in the form they once did. And that's kind of where we're going to pick up uh, here today in part two of this Lansing sign episode. So. Daniel, you brought uh, along with us today some photographs, but you also brought, more importantly, some discussion about those photographs. What's the first thing that we're going to consider as we're looking at the signs of this area here?
1: Well, the first thing I'd like to talk about is a small building that some of you may be familiar with. I'll show the picture here briefly. Uh, This is, well, was the... uh, one of the Sinclair Oils gas stations that uh, were prominent all around the United States uh, in the early part of the automobile era of
0: the uh, last century. Sure. And the uh, the visual that Daniel is showing up, for those of you that are listening to the podcast and aren't able to catch the, the uh, video, it is a uh, photo of a building that actually is in Lansing currently. Uh, it sits at the corner of Grand River and Capitol Avenue. Uh, is that correct or is it? Is it uh, Seymour Street? It's Seymour. Seymour. So Grand River and Seymour and Lansing's North Side, just on the edge of downtown and uh, Old Town, really kind of in between Old Town and downtown, actually uh, the Walnut neighborhood. And and that gas station, uh, well, that's what it was when it was built. It was a gas station. And uh, how long has that been there?
1: Well, if uh, according to the uh, little sign that sits by the historical marker, uh, it was actually built uh, in. Uh, well,
0: designed in 1923. Sure. So, early 1920s, and Lansing is booming, bustling industrial town like most of Southern Michigan uh, was at the time. And, of course, Lansing was booming for a variety of reasons, one of which was being automobile production. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lansing has a very rich and long history uh, of automobile production, including uh, Brand Marquis, General Motors, Oldsmobile, and then, of course, uh, the real motor car company and Durant Motors were all manufacturers at one time in this area, and so cars were a big deal here in Lansing in the uh, early nineteen twenties, weren't they?
1: Uh, yes, indeed. And the a little backstory about uh, this particular building—it uh, was a uh, Sinclair Oil's gas station. Uh, Sinclair was a prominent uh, a gas gas station uh, franchise, or uh, if you will. Um, much like what you would expect to find now with a Shell or a Speedway or, or have you. The company was actually around until quite recently um, in one form or another. But um, the Sinclair brand was kind of an iconic uh, sign that many motorists would have, um, would have been accustomed to at the time. Um, and they, they their branding um, was kind of uh, centered actually around the building in a lot of ways. And the signage, of course, was integral to that. Uh this building you see here and I'll show I'll hold the photo up again briefly so those of those of us watching can see it uh but I can describe it as well the uh building itself was designed in an arts and crafts style if you will which was popular at the time um Sinclair oils uh, kind of incorporated some of their branding though into it as far as the uh tile roof the terracotta tile roof, um, those were prominent on the gas stations. But then, of course, the signage. Now, this building has been wonderfully restored, and it didn't keep all of the signage, but it kept some of it, particularly the hand-painted Sinclair Oils uh, window lettering on uh, one of the upper windows, uh, lights as we call them, skylight windows. Um there's also, uh, the pump itself has some of the Sinclair branding on it, yep. which is very iconic. A complete with uh,
0: 17 cents uh, and 9 tenths uh, a gallon. Uh, yeah, wouldn't that be nice? Uh, it sure would be. Uh, gas isn't anywhere near that cheap. These days, by golly, I drove by a gas station uh, actually not too long ago, and it was well north of 3 bucks a gallon. So, yep. Would have been a lot, uh, a lot cheaper back then, that's for sure. Now, Sinclair oil. You mentioned that. You mentioned that there's still some of the, well, now we would call it, uh, would you call that historic branding? Uh, what, what would you refer to it when somebody paints or in some way illustrates off of a previously existing branding? Is there uh, Historic reproduction. Historic reproduction. Recreation. And that building, it's now a National Historic uh, place. It's on a National Historic Registry, isn't it? Yes, it is. Which is really something. And I I wonder if uh, not only the architectural style, but also the fact that that was a Sinclair oil station that we can identify for sure, uh, and the building's still there. Do you think that might have had a little bit of a a role to play in why that one of all, well, number one, survived, and then number two eventually ended up becoming a historic
1: place? I think for sure. And And what's interesting, a lot of things are interesting about this little building, not the least of which is the location of it. Uh, Even in the 1920s, that would not have been a really high-traveled intersection as far as ones that we think of um, nowadays. But uh, the station itself would have been located there as much for the residents to gas up their cars as it would have been for motors passing through. And Sinclair Oils was even though they had certain branding standards with their buildings, they tried to keep them so they didn't stick out unnecessarily uh, in the communities. That's why this one is a arts and crafts style, like some of the homes you'd find there. But yeah, they kept their terracotta terracotta clay uh, roof and of course the uh, iconic branding.
0: Yeah. And and it is really a lovely looking building. Mm. Um, And, And it fits in very well in that neighborhood. Actually, uh, in uh, full disclosure, Daniel and I both lived in that neighborhood uh, at one time and are not too distant past, so we're quite familiar with it. And absolutely, that fits in very well. And the Sinclair Oil Company, uh, actually, the name Sinclair ended up becoming involved. uh, Daniel and I were just talking about this not long ago, actually. in, In one of the great political scandals, great... When I use that word, caution here, I'm using it uh, in reference to the way people used it back then, meaning big, not necessarily good. Yes. And the Teapot Dome scandal is what I'm referring to, and Sinclair of Sinclair Oil, the company ended up becoming uh, involved in it, and now we could devote quite a program to the Teapot Dome scandal, but that's going to take us all the way out to Wyoming. This is Land Stories. We'll sum it up with uh, maybe the couple-minute version of it. Warren G. Harding was president. It's the early 1920s, and technology is changing at the time. That gas station, even uh, in existence, is, well, it's evidence of it. The technology I'm referring to is energy. There's a revolution going on, and it's the use of petroleum products. And the U.S. Navy, all of a sudden, has a great need for oil, right? Because it's powering their ships. So the the Congress passed a law making it easy for the uh, government to lease oil reserves. One such individual charged with leasing those oil reserves was a guy by the name of Albert Fall. He was the secretary of the Department of the Interior. And when some of these leases went online for the first time, and people noticed that very shortly thereafter, Albert Falls' standard of living seemed to have increased dramatically. How about that? Yeah, he paid off many years of back taxes that he owed on his property and had some other improvements done onto the land. The long and short of it is that money was uh, money that oil companies had bribed him with. And the Sinclair Company happened to be one of the ones that was involved in that bribery scandal. The curious thing about that is Fall ended up being convicted and uh, sentenced to prison, I believe he was until Richard Nixon's uh, uh, what, attorney general was uh, sentenced to prison later on uh, in the wake of the Watergate scandal that it had, I think it had been up until that point. So only two in the 20th century of uh, presidential cabinet officers ended up in prison. So anyways, that's kind of a little bit of a diversion that we ended up going down the road there. But the Sinclair Oil name is, well, it is that name. And I think we definitely had to mention it. Yeah, remarkable, David. Really yeah,
1: is. It yeah. just it just shows that uh there's a lot a lot behind a building like this and a name like that.
0: And uh a sign can indeed tell a story. Oh it, it very much. And in fact, we're gonna um I think we're gonna move on and talk about another sign here momentarily, but before we do that, Dan, and this wasn't something that I had planned on talking about, but I will uh approach the topic. The picture that we've looked at here a little bit, it has a sign in front of it that is a much more recent sign, and that is the state uh, historical marker that is put up into it. Now, I mentioned that sign really; it's popped in my mind here. The thought occurs that uh, all of us that have driven around the United States anywhere, there are a lot of historical markers that look a lot like that. And uh, I know I've seen state historical markers in all the states that I've been to in the United States, which is a lot of them. And they all look kind of like that. How is a sign like that made? And is there a reason why they all kind of look the same? Ah, uh, well, that's a very good question.
1: Uh, they are there's a few ways they can be made, but what dictates how they're made for the most part is the durability of it. Uh, the sign in question here, I'll put it again up so folks can see it. Uh, it, it. obviously, it says the filling station there. This is a cast bronze plaque, a very large. Comparatively speaking, cast bronze plaque. So it's cast like any other metal would be. A mold is made and uh, out of sand and then a a box to form that in, Mm -hmm. sand and a few other things that are involved in it. And then the molten metal is poured in there and allowed to cool. And then various uh, finishing techniques can be applied to it. Uh, And then a final... uh, a uh, protective coat of paint will go over it, clear coat in this case. Mm-hmm. So it's a very durable sign. It can be made to last a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And that that's primarily why they're made that way. Um, but they also need to be durable enough to stand up to the elements mm-hmm. that it faces uh, day by day. Sure. So a sturdy sign like that can withstand wind. Uh, in Michigan, you know, it could get snow piled on it. It mm-hmm. can withstand that. So, but the other reason they're designed that way is because uh, in the case of Michigan here, they're green. Mm-hmm. Most of them are put in uh, areas that have a lot of vegetation or landscaping and whatnot. So it's something that should be aesthetically pleasing and draw people's attention to it, but yet not be so overwhelming that it uh, sticks out in the neighborhood. Uh,
0: that is incredible. Well, who would have known how much uh, thought and effort and design would go into to these, well, uh, to use kind of a fancy word, ubiquitous signs, because they're everywhere, aren't they? Absolutely. And and downtown Lansing has many of them. Um, in a future episode, we are going to talk about one of those uh, mini, uh, in addition to the one we spent a few moments talking about right now, and that would be one of the mini that is in downtown Lansing that speaks to the area's labor history. So stay tuned for that. Hint, hint, Labor Day comes at the end of the summer. So it sounds to me like Excellent. we've got a, another episode coming up. Absolutely. So you, however, did bring a little bit more than just one sign uh, image for us to talk about today. What else do you have with us?
1: Oh, there's another photo I will grab here. And this is another building located in Old Town. This one was located at uh, 329 Cesar Chavez. And at one point, it was the Bank of Lansing. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is another example of the signage being tied right into the architecture. Sure. Now, in this case, this building is kind of a Greek re-revival, if you will. It's got some elements of Greek architecture, classical Greek architecture into it. But also what's important is it's a bank. So it is a building that needs to be sturdy and secure and prominent. Mm -hmm. So the type of signage that would have been appropriate for that, which we're talking turn of the last century, Mm -hmm. Uh, would have been a engraved, uh, a carved stone sign, if you will. Mm -hmm. So this is a prominent Bank of Lansing uh, sign manufactured right into the stone, which is uh, incorporated right into the building. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting about this sign is as much of what it doesn't have as far as, as much as what it has. It just says the Bank of Lansing There's no reference to the word federal mentioned in the name of this bank at all. Mm -hmm. So that tells me that the bank was probably formed during a time of uh, relative banking ease in this country. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a popular movement during certain uh, banking crises where the name federal would be incorporated into the name of the bank because once the Federal Reserve System was... uh, Adopted and I guess accepted. I'll use the term accepted. Sure. Um, depositors wanted to know that their bank was backed up by the full faith and credit of the United States of America. Mm-hmm. In the event of a bank run, they would be ensured that their deposit was still there. Yep. And of course, we've seen
0: we've seen a little bit of that recently. Oh, uh, sure. It's how funny
1: history repeats itself, isn't it, David?
0: Yeah. Uh, I we've seen the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which is the FDIC, spring into action. And the FDIC is really the end result of some of the uh, events and processes that Daniel's describing when he's talking about bank security. And And I, I'm really glad that that is the uh, image that you selected. And as the building and the sign you selected for us to spend a few months talking about, because it's kind of the same thing that we had going on when we can imagine standing on the street corner, either in front of the old Sinclair oil gas station Or in front of the old Bank of Lansing, if we take just a minute and look at our surroundings, oftentimes the sign being the first thing that catches our eye, we can actually learn a lot about a whole big chunk of history just by looking at one sign. And the so Daniel referred to a few things going on there (laughs) uh, with that bank, uh, one of which is being the uh, ups and downs of the financial sector of the American economy as the United States economy. Uh, expanded and greatly advanced in its complexity, so did the uh, advancement of financial transactions and the whole banking system. It had to keep up with uh, the way the economy was growing. And so in the early 1900s, actually 1913, the uh, same year that the federal income tax was codified in the Constitution, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or excuse me, the Federal Reserve System was created. The FDIC doesn't come along until much later. Uh, into the 1930s. So the Federal Reserve was a new banking system for the United States. And it's basically a bank that Congress Congress charters, but it's independent of Congress. It's technically not even part of the government, even though the government regulates it. And then it has to work with the Treasury and the U.S. Mint to control the money supply. Now, that's going to be it, I promise, for our econ and banking 101 (laughs) lesson right (laughs) now. But, however, I would definitely like to bring up One other building, it's a bank building in Lansing, actually, that also uh, very much has all of the same uh, exterior architectural features that this particular bank that we've been talking about has, including those signs that were actually carved into the stone. But before I get to that, Dan, I want to ask you a question about those card signs. Yes. I have been very lucky in my life to have traveled a bit, and I've seen some buildings that are very, very, very old, hundreds of years old. Actually, in some cases, well over a thousand years old, and they also have carved into the stone, uh, well, words on them that yes. tell you what the thing is. It could be a, a cornerstone, for example. Those came about uh, slightly differently than than uh, the type of sign that we're looking at here. But nonetheless, they're information, and they're like the immediate clues to how building as old a building is. So when the Romans, or let's say uh, medieval stonemasons, and erecting a cathedral in Europe in the 10th or 11th or 12th century, carved into stone. What was the difference between the way they did it back then versus the way, say, this bank would have been done uh, much more recently, yes. only, you know, 100, 120 years ago? Well,
1: the, the uh, Romans would have had the hammer and chisel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> tried and true, yes, right? Yes, tried and true. And uh, they didn't have a spell check back then. so Get they, it right. Yeah, or start over. Yep. <laughs> well, when this sign went up, uh spell check hadn't been invented yet, however, um, there there was one of two ways this sign would have been made mm-hmm. uh the The lettering would have been put in at, at the time the stone was cast, and then the uh made sign, if you will, would have been uh, lifted up and put in into the building at the time of construction, mm-hmm. or um, it could have also been made with uh, the aid of pneumatic tools, which they would have had um, at the time that building went up. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's possible. It also could have been made with a hammer and, <laughs> and chisel. Yeah. See. Um, but, but, but by the time this building went up, you know, we're talking, uh, late 1800s likely, mm-hmm. um, there would have been some fairly modern methods by then.
0: Yeah. Late 1800s or early 1900s. Yeah. I, I don't know the exact build year on that building, but by looking at it, you know, you could, Fairly safely say it's probably somewhere between 1890 and 1920 that that building was built. And uh, exactly, not having the federal uh, name on it. Right, that's kind of the giveaway there. Yeah, that's a good giveaway, Mm -hmm. exactly. And there's the other building I wanted to mention, actually, uh, is a building that has many, many stories uh, itself. And it is another bank building in Lansing. It's on the corner of Michigan Avenue and Washington Square, right downtown, where there's a big roundabout now. And uh, just a block from the state capitol building, that building has a lot going on on it. It has a beautiful bronze plaque. I think it's bronze. I've learned now after today's episode. I'm quite certain it is because it looks very much like the sign we just talked about. On the south side of the building, That has the Pledge of Allegiance Mm. carved into it and is the original Pledge of Allegiance, not the one we say now. I won't mention the difference. You can look it up. Then on the... uh, I guess it would be the east side of the building is the really fancy, uh, amazing part of it. It's the cherry on the cake. It is a carving by Ulysses Ritchie, who's a very well-known artist. It's a bas-relief type of a carving. And Ritchie nice. carved, uh, amongst others, the uh, Bank of Canada building in Ottawa, yeah. Canada. He's a very well-known artist from that time period. And the, the carving, the sign, if you will, uh, is a scene of yes. A Day in the Life land Lansing where a guy robs yeah. the bank and gets caught by the police. Yeah. <laughs> so, a lot going on there.
1: There is, indeed. <laughs> that, a lot going on. But but I'm glad you mentioned that because this ties in a little bit to what we talked about the last episode, mm-hmm. where um, signs all incorporate a value of functionality but a value of artistic uh, sure, artistic value as well. And, and that's a really good example of it. Um, and especially in those days um all sign makers were artists and they are nowadays too it's just a different um a different set of skills if you will mm-hmm. but um it was more of a fine art element uh back then mm-hmm. i think um whereas now the art art and science are more melded together but um that that that's a great example there and Again, tying into the architecture, um, obviously it tells a, a story mm-hmm. <laughs> and a uh, uh, a riddle, if you will <laughs> oh, very much but um also you know when when people are putting their money in a bank, they want to know it's secure
0: Oh absolutely and to go back to what you just said i want to want to expand our thoughts on that for just a moment art and and functionality functionality mm-hmm. and Nowadays, I think that we we say art and functionality and understood that maybe those things are sometimes the same, but maybe they're not either. Whereas in the pre-industrial world, people hardly ever distinguish between what we may call design and maybe what we would call utility. The two were not separated in the way we separate them now. In fact, people oftentimes thought you couldn't separate them. In order for something to truly function good, it had to instill a type of feeling in you, you know? Sure, absolutely. And, and even industrial tools, and I know we're deviating a little bit nowadays, but Daniel, this is something you and I have talked about before. Even when you look at some of the great industrial machinery that was made oh, absolutely. way back when in the, uh, say, the Art Deco era, the 20s and 30s, and it has a design element to it that actually exceeds, I think, sure. the functionality.
1: Oh, for sure. And But nowadays, that's incorporated in it, too. It's just in ways we don't think about. Mm-hmm. Um, There's a movie out there about the font Helvetica. Oh, yes. That I encourage everyone to watch. Mm -hmm. And uh, the font itself, there's a lot more to it than you think about, but it's like a lot of good signage nowadays. The attitude is almost
0: it's there, but it's not. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. It does. It's sort of you would notice it if it wasn't there, but you don't necessarily yes. notice it mm-hmm. when it is there. And a lot
1: of the uh, messages are almost subconscious, mm-hmm. and especially if you look around at modern bank signage. Mm-hmm. It actually has a very important pr- and prominent message it's sending. It's just almost subconscious. Sure. It's more of a familiar and a comfortable mm-hmm. message versus uh, 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 brick or
0: stone stability like the... Right. Uh, earlier uh, bank science was. Sure. It's security. Mm-hmm. And and now it's sort of comfort and security. Yes. But
1: but every bit the amount, every bit the thought that went into the uh, old science certainly
0: goes into nowadays too. Sure, sure. Just in different ways. I think that's a good place to leave off then for our uh, episode today. I want to thank you very, very, very much for coming by, Dan. My Really pleasure. appreciate it. We always, always enjoy learning about these things in our community. And and all of you will, of course, now have at least a couple more buildings, three really, uh, in Lansing to uh, go ahead and take a look at next time you're in this lovely area. So we will close out there and I will see all of you next time. You've been listening to Land Stories with me, David Seewick. For more information on this program and to stream past episodes, visit lccconnect.org. LCC Connect is the official home of the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College, offering hours of original and exciting programming. Hosted by faculty, staff, and community members, LCC Connect explores our college's work in the community, important topics in higher education, and our vision for the future. Catch the Vibe on 89.7 FM or online at lccconnect.org. Until next time, remember, keep telling good stories.
2: This is LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision.
3: K-12
0: Operations at Lansing Community College is a proud collaborator of the Lansing Promise Scholarship available to graduating high school seniors. Find information at lcc.edu hope.
1: message is for Karina, our mom who finished her high school diploma at age 28. Hi mom, it's Edith and Nicholas. Congratulations on getting your diploma. You worked so hard and have taught us so much. We love, love you. When you graduate, they graduate. Finish your high school diploma
4: for
3: you and for them. Visit finishyourdiploma.org to find free and supportive adult education centers near you. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad
2: Council. LCC Connect is looking for Lansing Community College students to vibe with us. Join us for the Podcast Power-Up Contest with the chance to host a podcast radio show on 89.7 FM. We'll be taking Power-Up submissions through the end of summer. Details at lcc.edu
0: slash powerup. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision.
5: This is Melissa Ford-Luckin.
3: Rosalie Pachowski. Susan Seraph and Jess
5: Editors for the Washington Square Review.
3: Washington Square On Air showcases the poetry and fiction of the latest edition of LCC's literary journal, The Washington Square Review, read by the poets, authors, and editors themselves. Expect unexpected as our contributors express experience and fantasy with humor, imagination, poetic license, irony, and passion. If you love language at its most original, please join us in our Audio Town Square to celebrate a community of writers spanning from
5: around the world to Lansing. Lansing. Hi, this is Melissa Ford Luckin, one of the editors with the Washington Square Review. And today I'm here with Saurabh Anand, who's one of our authors, The piece, I Miss You, Minnesota. We're really happy to accept and include in our journal. And the first thing I'm wondering is if you could tell me a little bit about the piece, what was going on in your life at the time that you wrote it?
6: Thank you, Melissa, for your question. So when I was reading this piece, I was in Georgia and I had to take a temporary refuge in Georgia because everything shut down because of pandemic so i was visiting my family down south i was visiting them during my spring break because at that time i was a master student and i just had two pairs of jeans and shirt with me in a suitcase and i'm in a very tiny suitcase and i was glad that i didn't forget my laptop charger because as a grad student that's really necessary to have that but long story short i i was under the refuge uh, because of the pandemic. And that time it prompted me to kind of write about my story of being stuck in Georgia uh, due to pandemic.
5: Did you start writing it right away? Did it sit in your mind for a while? How did that happen?
6: It's a good question because I did not realize it, but I did start writing about it while I was there, but I never thought that it would come out uh, as a story story. In the past I have used writing as my way to heal. So every time I am feeling a little bit of, you know, if I'm a little bit down or if I need a little bit of motivation, I usually resort to writing and try to communicate my feelings through writing. So yeah, uh, most of the pieces, uh, at least that one might read in my story were the products of that time when things were actually going south (laughs) it's weird to say that things were going south and i was in south too so for the publication i did work it further and kind of refine it
5: were there any pieces that you cut out
6: yeah i think i did cut out uh, some of the pieces uh, some of the reflections and those reflections included a little bit like the kind of reactions i got from my family when i was stuck because they didn't know what's going on and uh, they didn't know at that time like what was going on where I'm going to stay how I'm going to stay I was a master's student at Minnesota State then uh, in a very small town Mankato and there were like a lot of negotiations happening because I used to teach English composition there too so a lot of negotiations were going on how instructors will come back or did instructors need to be in station to kind of help other students out or what's what's happening if they are also traveling since every. Everything happened during our spring break. So yeah, a lot of negotiations, uh, departmental negotiations were going on, a lot of reactions I was getting from my parents. So yeah, uh, I just thought those could be part of some other stories that I p- plan to write maybe for WSR in later future. <laughs>
5: that sounds good. That would be great. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you and I talked a little bit about being an international student and you're a very traveling student. So you were kind of doubly stranded in a way. Um, talk a little bit about what that's like to be an international student and how that makes things more complicated.
6: It's quite a learning experience, I must say, Melissa, because a lot of times there's a lot of stereotypes about international student community. And one of the reasons I even chose to write this story and more than story, share this story with the world through Washington Square Review was that I wanted to communicate with domestic population of the U.S. just to let them know that, you know, there are different audiences or the international student term is an umbrella term and underneath that there could be different people with different kind of issues and opportunities or constraints an international student might have. So, for example, a very, very generic stereotype about international students is that They are usually rich and hence they can afford to study in America. But that may not be true for many, many, many international students, which include me too. I grew up in India and for a very long time I was working, but still uh, coming to us and earn my higher education degree was not even a dream. Like it was something that I could not even dream uh, without funding. So I was very grateful when my former uh, graduate school, which is Minnesota State, uh, Mankato, Department of English, offered me a graduate assistantship through which I could have tuition revision and, and get stipend to sort of, uh, in the lieu of teaching a course, was one lifetime opportunity for me. Having said that, there are also, you know, other sense of challenges the international community go through. There's a different sense of precarity do they bring on table. Yes, we do bring a lot of, uh, diversity, a lot of thought-provoking, different kind of diversity we do bring on table. But when things started to go south, or the kind of contribution do we bring on table, they, it often go unnoticed even though it is in creative writing or um, it is majorly true for creative writing media or uh, scholarly conversation. So I was very, very happy that Washington Square Review does not come into th- that category. And, uh, and I was very, very uh, happy to see that. Uh, my story was accepted and WSR board found value in my story, and uh, they could connect with it uh, connect with me so that uh, they gave me an opportunity to share it with the world. So yeah, there's different kind of uh, precarity. For example, we cannot work during summer. or even if we could, our host institution has to be the only employer. So a lot of time I would speak to my friends and they would say, hey, Starbucks uh, or this nearby coffee shop is hiring. And I would say, hey, cool, but I'm, I'm on a student visa. It's non-immigrant F1 visa. I cannot uh, or I couldn't work when I was on student visa then because that's going to be a different ball game altogether. And I have to go through different kind of immigration processes to get it reviewed and you know, there's a lot of scrutiny and whatnot. So those are the things that put international students on limit in many ways that a lot of other students' audiences don't go through, essentially. Also, uh, we, we cannot ignore the fact that when I wrote this story, U.S. as a nation was going through one of the biggest social turmoil, be it Black Lives Matters or uh, hate crime against Asian-American community. So uh, as international students, sometimes we it limit ourselves to kind of be vocal uh, publicly because we cannot go out to kind of protest like most of the domestic people out there, because if we get arrested for some reason, even we would be subjected to deportation. And that would bring the entire purpose of coming to the US and earning our uh, degree uh, down. So there's like all different kinds of precarity. Uh, so we tend to support uh, in in other ways that doesn't really, you know, that cannot bound us to or subject us to deportation, but we do it in other ways. One of the things that I did at that point was writing a poem and uh, listeners can read that poem at the international Journal of International Students. The title of my poem is F1 Visa, where I kind of talk about different kinds of challenges and level of precarities international students go through and what happens when the uh, international student community interact with immediate outside world where they kind of earning their degree and what's, what is the approach do they feel, uh, do they take when they kind of trying to be part of that community?
5: So you came to the United States to be a student and your main area Focus right now is composition, rhetoric, and composition.
6: So I'm doing my PhD in rhetoric and composition. And I aim to uh, do my specialization in writing studies. So currently, I am working in the Writing Center, um, UGA. UGA's Writing Center, I am part of the admin team. I also teach students. Another aspect of my graduate teaching assistantship is to teach uh, English composition. So I teach summer courses. I hope uh, I'm teaching this year, uh, but I've also taught in regular semesters as well, fall and spring, where I teach a variety of uh, first year. Uh, incoming student uh, college students like sometimes I teach English composition section that is where my sole audience is uh, multilingual writers and by multilingual writers I mean international students who are often multilinguals or multicultural students sometimes I teach all domestic students uh, and sometimes I have a mixed batch of both so yeah
5: That must take a lot of energy. And so I'm you mentioned earlier that a lot of times your your creative writing is an emotional outlet for you kind of therapeutic. So how do you balance the workload of teaching composition, which is pretty intense with your own creative work? How do you make that? How do you make time for yourself and nurture yourself in that way?
6: You know what i i do not necessarily see it as taking intentionally time out for my creative pursuits um it is just a very normal being for me for example these days on twitter there's this trend going on 30 words 30 days uh story i kind of take out time for uh you know uh so let me eat my words So, so what i'm trying to say is it just does not come it's it's not an intentional process for me i do it intuitively for example if i'm sitting right now i'm looking out my window i'm thinking about a poem for example when i was uh, when i when i actually got this uh, i'm i'm showing you the my my contributor's copy of washington square review summer 2020 when i got this contributor's copy the colors on here were very similar to the colors i'm able to see outside my uh, window right now so it just automatically comes to me to kind of prompt me to write a poem or something, and kind of it connects to larger issues that I'm interested in, or perhaps wanting to be interested in. So it just comes automatically. However, in my teaching, I intentionally do that by uh, by inviting my students to compose writing using not only scholarly text but also aesthetic text. Last semester, I taught my students how to write poetic autoethnography, which is basically a research. It's a writing genre uh, of autoethnography where people use their personal experiences as qualitative data and use different kind of cultural productions be it collection of essays or poems as qualitative data and see it from a see it from a research point of view or theoretical point of view so i have a lot of liberty in uh, in my department to teach whatever genre i need to teach uh, so they they tell us that you have to teach a research genre or even if they don't tell, I I feel like research is a very important part of any higher education student, regardless of what level they are. So just to orient them to the ethical research practices, I tend to kind of use storytelling, focused research methods to kind of get them started with composition. So this uh, last semester, I uh, I told them to kind of write a poetic autoethnography where they can reflect back to some moments or something that is going on currently in their lives that they would like to kind of see it from a different theoretical or conceptual framework and use their feelings, embedded poems or other cultural productions as qualitative data and write paper about it. So reading about them or sharing my experiences kind of really helps me to kind of feel intellectually and creatively stimulated. And it's a myth a lot of times that, in a classroom space, uh, it's only the students who learn from teachers. One of the greatest moments uh, learning experiences in my life has been where I often learn from my students because, as I've mentioned before, sometimes I teach a multilingual section of English composition where under a roof I have students from 10 to 15 different countries and they come up with a plethora of their cultural wealth, uh, literacies, and so many different stories that may or may not be aligned with American ways of being, or for me, Indian ways of being. But that is not necessarily wrong. They are just distinctive. They are just different. And there has to be a space as a teacher. I feel it's my social obligation to kind of create intentional spaces for them so that not only me, but students learn from each other as well
5: when you introduce this technique with the students, this um, pedagogical framework, do you ever have any resistance from students? Cause that's quite different than what they might be expecting in the college classroom.
6: I know. I know. So when I told my students that we're going to use data, one of the questions that I received from my students were, but there's no number. And I was like, <laughs> "Or there are no numbers. And I was like, yes, poems are your data. So you're going to analyze, so you're going to introduce poems as your data and in the analysis or discussion section, you're going to kind of talk about in what circumstances you wrote this poem or what was going on or what do you think about that poem now or why did you choose this particular metaphor to kind of explain what is going on or things like that. So Yes, you're correct. A lot of eyebrows were raised. (laughs) A lot of of epistemologies or ontologies about research were, uh, were revised. A lot of people were like essentially in shock. So when I introduced autoethnography in my classroom, I still remember there was like a pin drop silence in my class. And I told my students to kind of come up with you know, uh, some questions or doubts or clarifications they may need from me after re- re-reviewing the assignment sheet or syllabi or things like that I have shared with them pertaining to this genre. And I specifically remember, Melissa, <laughs> I had so many questions next time. I think I essentially had to kind of re-explain everything, which I happily did because that is kind of the kind of reaction uh, we often get when we kind of talk about autoethnography or storytelling-based research methods because in a co- English composition classroom, we tend to get students from a variety of intellectual backgrounds. Or some might be from STEM, some might be from social sciences, or some might be from more applied uh, sciences where they are used to of doing research in a certain way. They have different kind of research audience or population or different kind of data analysis method.
5: Mine also arrive in the classroom with the notion of what it's going to be. And then when you start talking about poems, that's not at all what they were expecting. What kind of responses do you get at the end of the assignment?
6: So I remember like uh, when... I was reviewing some of the papers and I have my students write self-assessment after every genre that they complete. And a lot of them would say, hey, it never prompted me to kind of think about narrative based poem or use it as a qualitative data or maybe like writing, writing poems about some of the mundane things or that they never, ever thought of. Even noticing because they do those because they engage with with those things very intuitively, or those things are very very common for them to find around themselves. So one of the specific uh, examples I remember that my student wrote about the rose plant they had uh, outside their uh, in their front porch, which. They always noticed but never prompted enough to kind of write a poem about it while they were engaging uh, with the academic writing process in my class. I remember another student who was an international student kind of wrote about different cultural practices uh, and they were kind of comparing and contrasting with what happens here and how things are different. So inviting that genre, uh, a storytelling-based genre, kind of helped... Diverse student groups to kind of bridge of different perspectives with other student population, which which they may on may not necessarily uh, come across in their everyday life, but just because they come together in an intellectual space during a specific time when they uh, and they get taught by me who uh, who is a die hard lover of stories and interested in other people's stories, they get to learn other ways of being in a more socially equitable environment and make it better than it already is.
5: I love that. That's really beautiful. (laughs) If people would like to stay in touch with you, where can they find out more about your work, what you're currently working on? And you mentioned Twitter, so if you're on Twitter and you'd like to say that, that would be great. Yes. So
6: so yeah, my Twitter handle is underscore startup underscore Anand underscore. It is as generic as it can be. But I do share about things that I write on Twitter. Since I have a very unique and in quotes, an American name, if you search me, I prefer to share my work uh, on open access platforms so that I can, people don't have to kind of go behind the paywall to kind of pay and to uh, access my work. So if you just Google search me, my work is just a couple of click away. Ways And I tend to write for more international student audiences and more literary background. So yes, uh, just Google me and you will find me. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks
5: a lot for spending some time with us.
6: The pleasure was mutual, uh, Melissa. Thank you so much. And I would like to thank the entire editorial board of Washington Square Review for giving me this opportunity. One, Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to our
5: talented poets and authors.
3: Until next time, this has been Washington Square On Air. Where we showcase selections from Lansing Community College's Literary Journal. The Washington Square Review. A publication featuring writers from the Great Lakes State. Across the nation. And around the world. To find out more about the Washington Square Review, visit lcc.edu WSR. We hope you enjoyed listening. As much as we enjoyed sharing.
2: Keep connected with LCC Connect at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision.
3: The LCC Library empowers the Lansing community to learn, teach, and discover. Located on the second and third floors of the Technology and Learning Center at the corner of Capitol and Shiawassee on LCC's downtown campus, the LCC Library's ambient spaces are available to the public for work, study, or quiet personal projects. In addition, those with memberships at collaborating libraries are free to check out materials from the LCC Library's collections. For more information, visit lcc.edu library. They are our love bugs and companions. They are our pets, our family, and they make life better. When we face unexpected challenges, so do our pets. That's why we're on a mission to support people and their pets. Whether donating a bag of kibble, sharing an Instagram post of a lost cat, or welcoming a foster pet into your home, every bit of kindness counts. Visit petsandpeopletogether.org to learn how to be a helper in your community. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad
6: Council. The Adult Enrichment Program at LCC offers classes in watercolor, creative welding, motorcycle safety, photography, and more. All classes are non-credit. Information about the Adult Enrichment Program is available at lcc.edu slash keep learning.
2: LCC. Connect. Voices.
6: Vibes.
2: Vision. Welcome to Community Combos, a podcast and radio program from LCC Connect with conversations about what's happening in Lansing and around mid-Michigan. And welcome once again to the combo. My name is Dedellian and in the studio with me today is a man who wears many, many hats. Uh, he is a community activist and of course he is the president of the Michigan Institute for Contemporary Art. Terry Terry, welcome to the show. Hey, glad to be here again. And of course, we are at that time of the year, probably one of Lansing's most favorite things and longest running festivals. I mean, I don't know if it's the longest, but it's definitely one of the longest running, isn't it?
4: You know, if we check into that, we started in 1995. So
2: it could be. for it's been a quite a while, time. yeah. Jazz Fest is what we're talking about, of course. Jazz Fest Michigan, uh, taking place this year for the uh, first week uh, of our first weekend of August. I don't know whether to call it a week or a weekend because we're talking both, aren't we? We are. Well, we're you know this year we're
4: starting. We, we've added something new. We're starting yeah. Wednesday. It used to be a two-day event and three-day. Now it's four days. So we kick off Wednesday night with Anthony Stanko. It's an incredible all-star band. Includes Rodney Whitaker. Randy Napoleon and
2: others uh, were to kick that off at our meet. So that's, that's a, a big change. Neat, that's a really nice sure. lineup right there already. That and, and that's the very first night.
4: Yep, that's our wow. Kickoff. That's
2: awesome. So tell me a little bit. Uh, first of all, let's let's get into the uh, the the gist of why you do this each and every year. So uh, the nonprofit
4: Michigan Institute for Contemporary Art's mission has been, you know, from the beginning to. Uh, catalyze community transformation by providing quality arts programming so we you know create spaces through festivals through the art gallery etc to bring people together so that they can meet old friends make new friends and in an arts context
2: have conversations and work together to build our community that's that's what we're about very good and like you said we've kind of extended it from two nights to three nights to four now you just like making yourself some extra work, don't you? Yeah, that's it. there's that. But, you know, the first
4: two nights are manageable. You know, they're insider beat. Sure. So we have a great sound system there. The bands are treated well. And it'll sure. be great kickoff events. Uh, the fundraiser Thursday night is for the Lawrence Lowe Leathers mm-hmm. Foundation. But we have some great talent lined up for this
2: entire festival. And, and I saw you had some of the fun acts in there. And by that, I mean, uh, getting a chance to kind of watch some of the kids playing a little bit, too. Who do we have lined up in that area? School of Rock, I know, is on that. School of
4: Rock has been part of our thing for a while now. We have uh, a, a couple of young uh, musicians. They're at, actually at MSU uh, jazz studies program. Max Gage Trio, Ruben Stump Trio are going to be performing uh, at the events and uh, as part of the Afterglows as well.
2: Yeah. Yeah, we talked about the Urban Beat, of course, that being part of it. Uh, but as the years have changed, this has been going on since 95, kind of the location in some ways has sort of changed. Oh, yeah. uh, explain what we're going to be looking at this year.
4: Well, I think when we first started doing it, we actually were doing it, some of the festival in the parking lot, yeah. Lot 56. And then on Turner Street, we'd close that down. And people were saying, well, where do we park? So we said, well, we've got a parking lot. Why don't we let people park in the parking lot and we'll move the festival? So we closed down the street more. We have two stages on Turner Street. Mm -hmm. We opened up another stage we call the River Stage, which is behind Urban Beat. Thanks to Ferguson Development, they let us use that lot. So it's a great stage, nice, intimate stage. And then inside Urban Beat. So that gives us right now four stages, which...
2: It's probably enough. <laughs> yeah, it's quite enough actually. But I do like the the fact that you got the river stage now because it does kind of lend itself to, um, I don't know, kind of be able to switch from one act to the other a lot quicker and easier. Easier because you you know you, you can overlap a little bit, right? Uh, whereas whereas in years past, if you had that overlap, it would just sound like cacophony in the middle of the <laughs> of, right, of right. the festival. Well, you
4: know, and some of what we do is intentional, like. Um, we stop one stage and have another stage start up. It kind of forces people to not just go sit down, take a spot, and stay sure. there the whole time. You, sure. get, you, know, and you have to move to hear another band, and that's a good thing because now you bump into somebody, I mean, figuratively, you know, literally, and, uh, and that's a good thing because then you meet people that way.
2: Well, and you're talking about walking around, and it's a little bit different now because now we got the uh, social district oh, yeah, as well, right? Oh,
4: yeah, that's big. That's big, the social district. So now people can buy, you know, adult beverages mm-hmm. in a properly labeled cup, and they can walk around anywhere. They don't have to stay combined in, in, the, in a fenced-in area. So that's another bonus that really has been in a boon to the to the area as well.
2: If uh, people wanted to get, uh, say, T-shirts and posters, they can do that, can they? They're going to have all in there. We'll have vintage shirts as well as this year's, you know, Jazz Fest shirt and, uh, yeah, do you usually have those available in MICA, or do you have them out on the street?
4: We, I believe this year we're doing them in a, in a separate booth. So there will okay. be a booth on the street. Probably, I think they're right at the entryway. So you come in the north side, and you get your pick up your ticket, your wristband, your drink tickets, and you can buy a t-shirt. What right exactly out. does the ticket get a person? There's two levels of tickets. One's premier seating, so that's mm-hmm. the upfront rows and both stages, uh, both of the two uh, south and river stages. So it gives you those premier seats up front in all the stages, actually. And I think it's sort of 20, only $25 for the whole weekend for both nights, both nights, excuse me. And then uh, the $15 ticket is for both nights, Friday and Saturday, and that's general admission seating.
2: Okay, okay. And, and in the beginning here, we were talking a little bit about uh, some of the folks that you had. Was that part of the benefit concert? We have the Ashton Moore organization.
4: Performing that night, night, Reuben Stump and Tom Duffel performing that night, and that's for the Lawrence Low Leathers Foundation. That is Thursday night, and you know we're we're you know
2: asking a donation
4: that night. Um,
2: that was uh, Thursday, thirty-five dollars. Okay, yeah, okay. So the other thing I forgot to mention about or ask about uh, with the tickets is what if somebody wanted to grab some ahead of time? What do, what do they do? Where do oh, they, they go? can
4: go online. So there's uh, it's uh, it's a mouthful. <laughs> but if they if they go to the Micah website, but it's, you know, bit, B-I-T dot L-Y slash my jazz fest 23, because it's not that bad. And you can go online and buy your ticket through brown paper tickets. You can and, get and it easily
2: yeah. So time. you could you could pop on uh, the Michigan Institute uh, for Contemporary Arts website and then go yep. from there. Right. Yep. Probably the easier way to do it, I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, there are. Show up and you'll get in. You got some beautiful Uh, artwork on uh, this year's poster. uh, We do. That was by actually an aunt
4: of mine from the 40s, uh, Alma Marino. But she did it in the 30s or 40s.
2: It's a little bit reminiscent of, uh, I want to say, Juan Juan Grief. Yeah, it's it's Cubis. It's the Cubis influence. It's got that vibe. Yeah, I like it. It's good stuff.
4: Uh we also have some great talent this year. James Carter quartet with Lady Champagne and Jace Carter is a phenomenal musician out of Detroit. T Bone Paxton and the Old Town Stompers. We did something unique last year with them. They did a show at Urban Beat a Speakeasy Show and he put together a nineteen twenties only song era band, jazz. He had uh, a couple horns. Two guitars, trombone and singing. Okay. Uh, no drum, no bass. And he's putting together a unique sound. It really was phenomenal. But all the, they were all Prohibition era songs. So that's what he's got on tap. But he's part of the uh, Planet D No Net, uh, band. There.
2: That sounds really cool. Yeah,
4: they, they're just phenomenal. Um, Ami Amorete Quartet. She's out of uh, Chile. Uh, I think she's a support yarn now, but she's a phenomenal singer and artist. We have the Lansing Big Band, who I don't know, I can't even remember the last time they played, so we, we have a big band. Michael Deese is like getting some; yeah, he's top of the jazz charts right now.
2: All right, always as always, like a variety of styles of jazz uh, at yep. Jazz Fest as well. What about volunteers? Are you still in need of that?
4: Always oh, need. We never have too many volunteers. It was
2: kind of a rhetorical question, <laughs> but.
4: <I laughs> yep, and they can do it by going to the website. Uh, Misharts.org, M-I-C-H-A-R-T-S, org, or call 371-4600 and volunteer them.
2: And just, just to add a little incentive, what is the incentive? Uh, you get a T-shirt, a meal,
4: and uh, a soda or water as part of the package. Okay. So, plus you get to hear great music and help everybody out in the community. Again, about the community, you know, Jazz, you were mentioning this earlier, is you know not only well-attended, but it's probably the most diverse gathering of people in Lansing all year long, every year.
2: Yeah, you you literally bring thousands to the to to Old Town when Young, this happens. Old yeah,
4: ethnicities, every, you name it, they're there.
2: And a lot of dancing too. Good dancing, yeah. Always nice. Again, the website. Uh, well, you can just look up Michigan Institute for Contemporary Art. That's probably the easiest and best way to do it. Uh, you could also look up Jazz Fest Michigan. Terry Terry, president of the Michigan Institute for Contemporary Art. Uh, appreciate you coming in and talking with us a little bit about Jazz Fest. Well, thank you. See you there. You've been listening to Community Combos, a program from LCC Connect with conversations about what's happening in our community. To listen to this episode on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org or find us on your favorite podcast platform. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on Community Combos, email us lcc lcc.edu. And thanks for joining the combo. This is WLNZ Lansing. You're listening to LCC Connect, a weekly program that features the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College. To find out more about LCC Connect programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision.